Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this evening. I um, um, don't know exactly what we're going to do with this uh, uh, as far as uh, go, whether we'll go further than, than just the message I have on my heart tonight to share or not. We'll just have to see. Uh, if you're a regular around here, you know that we usually teach in a series. Whether we do that with this or not, I, I really, at this point, I don't have direction from the Lord on but there's something that, um, uh, that the Lord's really been dealing with me about here over the last, uh, oh, I don't know, three weeks, maybe a month. And, um, um, and I want to share that with you this evening, if I could. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 is one of my favorite verses of Scripture. It's a verse of Scripture that, uh, that the Lord draws me to again and again and again. And um, just about the time I think that I see everything that I need to see there, He'll show me something else about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost, and he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Now, there's uh, um, I'm reading from the King James. I just did read from the King James. And where it says new creature, that's, uh, that's an archaic translation. Uh, it's, uh, it's most of the modern translations, uh, uh, any Bible that's, uh, that's been published in um, uh, in the twentieth century, instead of saying a new creature, it'll say new creation for the most part. And um, uh, about a year ago, maybe a little more, I came across a, another translation that said it this way: "If any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being." Now, the translation that I found that in is is uh, uh, is not one that I rely on very much. It's uh, it's. Uh, uh, in many cases, it's not a real literal translation. Some translations are more paraphrased, more modern language type stuff than, uh, than they are uh, true to the original scriptures. And this happens to be one of those. And so, uh, so even though it was something that I don't rely on very much, uh, it, it really caught my attention. Because in this case, it's true to the original meaning. Now, let me explain something to you about, uh, about the word new, where it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. In both the Greek and the Hebrew, there are two different words used for new. And they mean two different things. One uh, has meaning uh, concerning uh, time, and the other has meaning concerning character. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you replace the soap in the dish in your bathroom, well, if it's dove soap or ivory soap or whatever type of soap you use, if you put a new bar of dove or ivory, whichever one you use, you have put a new bar of soap. You put a new soap in the dish. But it's only new because it's fresh. It's the same kind as it was before. Now, um, you, we might even say it that way. We might even say, I put a fresh bar of soap in the, in the dish or, or in the bathroom, wherever it is. Jesus used this word when he was uh, speaking of uh, the wine and the wineskins. He said, no man puts new wine in old skins. The new he's talking about, there's no difference between new wine and old wine except the freshness. It's the same wine. It's just a matter of time. It's new in the sense of time. Anything that, uh, well, we could say it this way. If somebody came to church today and say, oh, I got a new car for Christmas. Well, that's great. What would you have before? Well, I had a Chevrolet. What have you got now? I've got a Chevrolet. Well, it's a new car in that it's more recent. It's newer than the kind they had before, but it's the same kind. It's not new because it's a different kind. But this word that's used here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 means new in sense of kind, quality, and character. 
It's literally saying if any man be in Christ, he's a new kind of person. That's why this other translation, even though it's not a real reliable translation in many cases, that's why I particularly like that verse of Scripture in that translation. Because it, it really brings out something I think that is... Uh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm in the habit of saying it's a little blind to us, but it's not even blind to us. We just don't think. When he says a new creation, it literally means something brand new. Now, I was... Um, about a month ago, I guess, um, or, or I don't know how long ago it was, but it wasn't too long ago, I was uh, meditating on this verse of Scripture. If any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being. I was meditating on it that way. And the Lord challenged me. He said, how long are you... Because I've been saying that for a long time in the church. I mean, anytime I read that verse of Scripture, I'll use that translation as, uh, as an alternate meaning or, or to bring out the true meaning of, of what's being said there. And the Lord challenged me on it. He said, how long are you going to say that before you figure out what that is? And I was kind of offended because I thought I knew what it was. But anytime the Lord does that, and, and i got to tell you, many times the Lord will challenge me to find something rather than just lay it out, here it is. And whenever He does that, I know that there's something really good for me to find. The stuff that He opens up to me just kind of out of the blue, it's like, wow, that's great. But the stuff that He leads me to search out is really the stuff that means the most to me it winds up being more precious to me because it costs me something to find it. It's, the search is part of, the, part of the, the, the fun, I guess. I don't know. So anyway, he challenged me on that. How long are you going to say that without, without figuring out what that is? That was the, the term that he used, without figuring out what that is. So I started trying to think of that. What does it mean, a new species of being? What does a new creation mean? I used the word new to be a different kind than was before. Paul used, by the Holy Ghost, the word new in the sense that, let's go back to our original or one of the examples that we used. If somebody came in and said, I got a new car, what did you used to have? I used to have a Chevrolet. What have you got now? I've got a Mercedes. Okay, it's new not just because it's a newer model. It's new because it's a new kind. It's new in kind. It's new in quality. It's new in character. That's what Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost here. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new species of being. That means it's something that never existed before. It's something that never existed before. Now I got to meditating on it and studying and, and, and thinking about what I knew about the Bible and realizing what I didn't know about the Bible. And, uh, and, and I came to a conclusion. There are four species of beings that the Bible speaks about in, in Scripture. There are four species of man. I'd never thought about it in those terms before. But it's so clear to me now. It was there all the time, but I never thought about it. There, were four, there are four specific species of man. Number one was Adam. God created Adam out of the dust of the earth. He wasn't born. He was created out of the dust of the earth. Now turn back with me to Psalm chapter 8. David is writing in Psalm 8 by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And it's real easy to... Um, well, let me just give you something for your consideration. You decide whether or not you think this is true. The oral tradition of the Jews, there are, there's, uh, the, the Old Testament has two different versions from the, old, old, uh, from the Orthodox Jews. Now, what, what I mean by that is they have the written law and then they have the commentary. The written law is that which God gave Moses in the first five books of the Bible and then whatever other writers were responsible for the other books, the prophets and so forth. That written word, those documents were, were kept 
were faithfully transcribed. Nothing was added to, nothing was taken away. There was a very specific and strict code whereby the scribes would, uh, would, uh, would write. If they made any mistake whatsoever, there was, there was never allowed any, uh, any correction for it. They had to throw away whatever they had up to, up to that point and start all over again. They had to purify themselves in a ritualistic cleansing manner before they could ever touch the, the, the quill of the pen to the, to the page. It was a very, very serious thing. They recognized that this is the Word of God and, and they treated it as such. They respected it as such and treated it as such. But the rabbis, starting with Moses, as Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the tradition of the Jews is, now you choose whether you want to believe this or not. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just su submitting this to you from a historical perspective and uh, it, the claim of the Orthodox Jews. They said that Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, and then he told them all the things that God had said. And so the Torah is the written law represented by the Ten Commandments as it was expanded to all the law and the prophets. Then it is known as the Torah. The Talmud is the commentary that the, that the, uh, uh, the rabbis and the high priests would add to the Scriptures. Well, you could well understand that the stuff that Moses came down from Mount Sinai, you remember the story about how he went up onto the mountain and there was, a, there was fire and, and on the mountain and, and thunder and lightnings and, and such, a, uh, such a, a tremendous display of power up there that the people down below, the, the Israelites down below, they said nobody could live through that. Moses is dead. <laughs> Forget waiting for him to come down. He's been up there for 40 days. He is not coming back. And that's part of the reason why they uh, convinced Aaron to build him a golden calf. Okay, the God that Moses said was the real deal has now taken him up into the mountain and killed him, so let's try a calf. We were used to those in Egypt. Let's, let's go back with that. Well, when Moses came down from the mountain, and after he got mad and broke the tablets of stone and, and that kind of stuff, you could imagine that whatever he would have to share with us the group of people that was there, whatever he would have to share about what happened in those 40 days when the thunder and the lightnings and the earthquakes and all that other kind of stuff was going on, that would interest me. Wouldn't it you? I mean, if you were Joshua, somebody close to him, wouldn't you say, hey, Moses, what happened up there? Well, that's what the Orthodox Jews say has been handed down. And as the, uh, uh, the same thing where the prophets were concerned... They delivered the law that God gave them, the words that God specifically gave them to speak, but then there was an oral tradition. The Hebrew language is, uh, uh, is very, um, well, it's symbolic, but that's not really the word I'm looking for. It's, uh, it's made more for speaking than it is for writing. And uh, you, you find the Orthodox Jews now put as much or more emphasis on the speaking of the word then they do the parchments themselves and the written word itself. Well, as a result, the, Jew, the Orthodox Jews say of Psalm 8 that David told the people after he wrote Psalm 8, he told those throughout the rest of his life or whatever that that psalm was written as he was standing with the angels. In other words, he's inspired to say this, but from the perspective of the angels looking at creation. Now, it's easy to read Psalm 8, and, and if this is all you want out of it, that's okay with me. It doesn't change it a bit. But it's easy to read Psalm 8 and think that David is just sitting back and saying, Wow, God, you really did a great thing when you made man. But if the, the, if the, the Talmud is correct, that David is speaking 
as if he is standing in the presence of the angels when creation took place. If it was something that God revealed to him, showed him in some way or, or form, and the angels are speaking, then it kind of puts a different spin on it. Now, what do we know? Let's, let's consider for a moment if David is writing, if, if, uh, if the, the oral tradition is true, that that's what David said. What do we know? Well, we know that Satan has already rebelled against God. He's taken a third of the angels with him. God has thrown him out of heaven, defeated him like that. Jesus describes it in, in Luke chapter 10, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. A lot of people think there was this great war in heaven that took place. Not so. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Have you ever seen lightning fall from heaven? Lightning starts in the sky, streaks down to the earth, almost so fast you can't even see it. And then the result is, boom. That's the description that Jesus gives of Satan being cast out of heaven. Folks, the devil and God were not having this big arm wrestling match and God just happened to win. Yet that's the idea that so much of the church has because they magnify the devil's power. You can't compare the two. That's why Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Can't you see Satan putting up all of his plans, going behind the scenes to the, to the angel saying, come go with me. We're going to take this thing over. Biggest mutiny ever. We're going to overthrow God. A third of the angels, the stupid ones, I guess, said, okay, yeah, I'm with you. So Satan mounts his charge against God. Whap! That's it. There was not this thousand-year war that took place. There was not this great battle or whatever. God spoke, cast Satan out of heaven. He fell to the earth, stripped, defeated, broken. Now after that, the Bible says that the Genesis creation took place. How do we know? Because Satan was already here on the earth when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So that means the battle, whatever Satan being cast out of heaven, whatever took place, had to take place before the Genesis account of creation. So after a third of the angels have been have rebelled against God, then God says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 in the creation account, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. That's where Psalm 8 comes in. Verse 3. Well, let's just read it in context. We'll start in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. The word angels here is the word Elohim. It's a word for God. Thou hast made him a little lower than God himself, the Trinity, and hast crowned him, man, with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now again, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm not trying to convince you that the Talmud is true. 
I'm not trying to tell you that that the, that which is claimed to have been said by David and David's perspective, it doesn't matter to me. Because regardless of whether this is David looking back to the creation or if he was seeing it from the perspective of the angels, the same thing is going to be true. And that is, after the angels have rebelled against God, the angels are then sealed. They made their choice, that's it, that nothing else can be done. Can you imagine the angels that are witnessing creation? And God says, Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our own image, and let him have dominion over the works of our hands. Now, we know that Satan was a ruler here on the earth, because Satan said, Here's, this was Satan's sin, I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. So he had to have a throne. He said, I will exalt my throne above the heavens, which means this throne had to be below the heavens. So literally, Satan had some kind of authority, some position of authority. He may have been the ruler of the earth. We don't know. But he had some sort of of authority, some sort of position. And then after he rebels and God slaps him down, then God says, now let's make man and give him dominion. And the angels are saying, you're going to do what? Don't you remember Lucifer? You're going to make man? What is man that you are mindful of him? Let me ask you a question. What did the angels know that God meant when he said, let us make man? There had been no man before. So if you're in the angel core, and you're watching God create the earth, You're seeing that which is taking place and God's plan unfolding and God revealing what His plan is as Jesus is creating the earth. The Bible says everything was created by Jesus. So you're watching all these things that are going on and you hear this statement, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the works of our hands. You've just been told three things that blow your mind, however that works with angels. Man, never heard of that before. In God's image, nothing else has been made in God's image prior to that point in time. And him having dominion. That giving away dominion didn't work too well with Lucifer. And now here God is going to roll the dice on something that the angels wouldn't even know what it is? That was the condition that Adam was created, folks. Adam was a new species of being. He was created from the dust of the earth. God breathed in him the breath of life. Literally, it means God breathed, just like Jesus breathed on the disciples in John chapter 20 and said, receive the Holy Ghost. God, Jesus literally breathed into Adam his breath, his life, and now all of a sudden Adam is a a living creature. It may very well have been something as, as, as simple as Jesus stands him up, holds him up by his armpits, breathes in him, lets go, and now he's alive. What was Adam like? Well, he didn't know sin. He had, he had no body that was tainted by sin. His righteousness was based on that which God had placed from within him. He was a new species. His body was not subject to death because there was no such thing as sin and death in the earth. So the first species of man was Adam. That's why his actions represented everybody's actions. That's why what he did covered you because he was the originator of the the seed of man. He was the source, the first one. 
And that's why the Bible says we all sinned in Adam. Well, I didn't sin when Adam did. He's the one that ate of the tree. I'd have been smart enough not to do that. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Knowing the story, yeah. Uh, why should I be pay the price for that? Why should I be born into sin and to death? I didn't make that mistake because you were in Him. You, all of mankind, was the seed of Adam. You were in Him. So when He sinned, you sinned. You, as the unborn seed, were in Him. Oh, there's so much more to being in Christ than we, than we, we even stop to think about. You were in Adam, so Adam's actions covered your spiritual condition. Now, what was the second condition of man, or what was the second species of man? That's easy. Fallen man. As soon as Adam sinned, turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. As soon as Adam sinned, the Bible tells us that sin passed upon all men. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin. You remember the commandment that God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He said, eat of every fruit of the tree, of fruit of every tree that you want to, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not the tree of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam has already been commanded to dress and keep the garden. That literally means garden protected. He knows there's an enemy. God's made it perfectly plain. If there's no enemy, there's nothing to guard and protect it from. He knows there's an enemy. What doesn't he know? He doesn't know good and evil. All he knows is good. It's not the tree of evil, though. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Folks, I want you to understand, when God said, In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die, it literally means dying thou shalt die. Death shall overtake you, in other words, literally. Death shall overtake you. What's the penalty for eating of the forbidden tree? Death. Now, they didn't die that day physically, so he can't be talking about physical death. So what's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. So that's Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. The penalty for Adam's sin was spiritual death. He was separated from God. What's the first thing the Bible tells us happened when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit? Their eyes were opened, and they saw themselves. What's the first thing they saw when their eyes were opened? Themselves and where they fell short. They said, uh-oh, we're naked. Folks, their clothes didn't disappear when they ate the of the fruit. They were naked all along. Why are they now conscious of their nakedness? Because the life of God has gone out of them. That which joined them and gathered them together. Some people speculate they could very well be right. You ever seen a light bulb that's on? It's got a filament in there, but as long as the light is on, all you can see is the shining of the light. You can't see the filament in there. Turn the light off. Those wires are easy to see. Some people speculate that that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. The light went out. That's what David said. He said, of, uh, speaking of Jesus and the, the Redeemer, he said, Thou, O Lord, will light my candle. You'll bring the light of life back upon me. Maybe that's what happened with Adam and Eve. Could be. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all sinned. 
Notice I didn't read with the King James, all have sinned. Have is not the issue. All sinned when Adam sinned. If have sinned was the issue, then you would be held responsible only for your individual sins. But spiritual death took hold of you before your individual sins were an issue. You were born into a world of death. 4, verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world. Now, why did the law come? Because man, God had to find some way to deal with fallen man. For until the law was in the world, I'm sorry, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Imputed is an accounting term. It means something counted against someone. So it's literally saying mankind was, sin was not counted against mankind until there was a law. Yet he was still ruled and reigned by death. That's what it tells us. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, even though sin wasn't imputed unto mankind because there was no law until Moses, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even unto them, over them, that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So what's the second species of man? Fallen man. God didn't create it. It was the condition that took place after Adam and Eve sinned against God. Now, God deals more with fallen man than any other group. He gives them laws. He gives them rituals. He gives them sacrifices. Why? Because He's trying to find a way. He's creating a way for man to come back to Him temporarily. But it's just surface. God covers over man's sins. God puts away his sins for one year at a time. But then man is still left to his own devices, his own actions, the carrying out of the rituals so that his sin can be overlooked. But the sin is never erased. He doesn't change. He doesn't start with spiritual death, but then when he makes the sacrifice, the spiritual life comes to him. And then within a year, it wears back off to spiritual death. That's not how it happened. There was never a change that occurred on the inside of it. It was just something that God was able to overlook because of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, the ritual sacrifice. God deals more with fallen man in the Bible than any other group that we have record of. Now, that'll be important as I'll show you as we go, assuming we get there. I'm spending a lot more time on these things than I'm planning to. The third species of man was Jesus. Jesus was a brand new species of man. He was different from Adam because he was born of a woman. He had to be, he had to bypass the sin and death that ruled and reigned in the earth, and the only way to do that was through the virgin birth. And not only that, but there is great pains that the Bible takes in establishing Jesus' genealogy. Why? Because genealogy had everything to do with God's manner or means of the law to bring man back into fellowship with him. So Jesus was in a class by himself in that he was born of a virgin. Nobody else had ever been born in that way. Adam wasn't born that way. Adam was created from the dust of the earth. Fallen man was born of man and woman. Jesus was born of woman and God. And that was necessary for him to be the sinless sacrifice. Now, there's something else about Jesus that's important for us to recognize, and that is, if Jesus is just here on the earth as a sinless human being, then that shows us how he relates to God. That shows us how he relates to Adam. But how does he relate to you? 
He was in the same form in that He was created in the earth without sin, just like Adam was. So that would make Him a representative of Adam, and He is the second Adam, meaning His action is going to cover mankind too. But how does He relate to you? How does someone that lives in a sinless form with a body that's never been touched by sin, how does that relate to fallen man? There's only one way he can relate to fallen man, and that is to lay aside his heavenly power and glory. And the Bible says very specifically, Jesus said himself, he wasn't the one doing the works. It wasn't power that was inherent in him because he was the Son of God. That's why he always referred to himself as the Son of Man, except for one case where he talks to his disciples and he explains to them completely, absolutely, clearly, I'm the Son of God. Every other place he identifies himself with man. Why? because he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he did not have any more power inherent and of himself than you and I do, or that fallen man did. Now that's hard for us to compute. That's hard for us to accept because we think, well, Jesus was the Son of God. How could he not have something by being the Son of God? Folks, you need to realize that there's a difference between condition and ability. In condition, he was sinless and the Son of God. In ability, he was identified with man, not God. So in condition, he was representative of God. But in ability, he was representative of man. And that's the only way that Jesus could be a worthy sacrifice is to represent the two parties in one. He represented God because he was sinless in his condition. He represented man because he was powerless unless God gives him something extra which is exactly what God did when He was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Bible says the Holy Ghost came upon Him, descended upon Him in bodily form as a dove, and stayed. That's why Jesus said, The Father in me, He doeth the works. It's not me that's doing it, it's the Father in me that doeth the works. The fourth species of man is the man in Christ. Now turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 17 again, but now I'm going to read down through verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new species of being, something that's never existed before. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, in this way, That God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Remember we read in Romans 5, 14, I think it is, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Why is Jesus not imputing sins unto mankind? Because He's there to reconcile or to carry them away. He's there to do away with them. The good news is, Jesus didn't come to make you aware of sin. He came to make you aware of His sacrifice. So he's in the world, not not imputing their sins unto men, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You know what the good news of Jesus is? Jesus paid the price. Fallen man had to pay his own price. He had to go through this ritualistic sacrifice. He had to do all the things in the keeping of the law, and, and even no matter how hard he tried, nobody was able to do it. The good news is Jesus already did it. It's already been done. Now then we are ambassadors, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, 
Be ye reconciled to God. Now he's writing to people that are already saved. And he's telling people that are already saved, people that have already been reconciled by the, by the sacrifice of Jesus, he's telling them, be reconciled to God. What's he trying to get across to them? Is he saying, be born again again? Well, of course not. You can't do that. Nobody can be born again again. So why is he telling people that have been reconciled by the, by the sacrifice of Jesus, why is he telling them, be reconciled to God? He's saying, understand the reconciliation. Understand that you are a new species of being. Recognize that you've been reconciled. Everything is done away with. Folks, can I ask you a question? What is the thing that holds back the church? Our thinking about ourselves. We still deal with the same problem that occurred when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. We see ourselves as naked. We see ourselves as unequipped. We see ourselves as unworthy. Adam saw himself as unworthy to walk with God in the, in the, the cool of the day in the garden. So he hid himself. Man's been hiding ever since. And Christians, those that have been reconciled to God by the sacrifice of Jesus, have not accepted that they're reconciled. And so what do we do? We hide. Jesus said, go do the works that I did. Occupy till I come. But we sit back and say, we can't. We're so unworthy. Because we still look at ourselves in the flesh. Now why is, Jesus, or why is the Holy Ghost giving Paul this information to tell us? Very simply. Verse 21, for he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made. Now get the context, he's saying be reconciled to God. You've been saved, be reconciled to God. Why? Because Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we know that the new species of being in verse 17 is a righteous creation. Right? Now let me ask you a question. Think this through with me. Four groups, four species of beings. Adam, fallen man, Jesus, in Christ. Which one did God have in mind when He made man? Was God not smart enough to know that Adam and Eve would fall in the Garden of Eden? Was it a surprise to God to find that He goes down to His afternoon meeting with Adam and Adam's not around? And God's saying, where is that guy? Adam, where are you? I keep misplacing this guy. Where are you, Adam? Did God not know? Was it a surprise? Certainly not. God knew. Think about what else the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. That means before God ever said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image, before Satan ever had a throne below the heavens, before any of those things, before the foundation of the world in any form whatsoever, billions and billions and billions of years ago, I don't know how old the earth is, I know how old man is. Man's 6,000 years old. How long was the earth here before that? I don't know. Not really. No, not really. 
Okay, we'll debate with somebody else. How about it, pal? Bible says the earth became without form and void. It had to be something. How old is the earth? Science says it's billions of years old. Are they right? I don't know. I'm not qualified to say they're not. If they are right, does it change the truth of the word? Not a bit. Not one little bit. Before the foundations of the world, say uh, Jesus was slain. That means that Jesus' sacrifice was what God had in mind from the beginning. So who is he after? He's after the in Christ species of being. Folks, what I want you to understand is this. Being in Christ, we look at it as, oh, if only we could be without sin. God's not looking for you to be without sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people are going to misunderstand what I'm saying and and say that I'm saying something I'm not. Certainly God wants us to live sin-free. Certainly God wants us to live and provide works or fruits of righteousness without question. I'm not saying that God, God expects you to sin, that God's okay with you sin. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is God understands that in Christ, the in Christ species of being, the one that never existed before, is going to have to deal with thoughts of unworthiness. So what does the Bible say that we are to do? Well, the principle is, let the weak say I'm strong. Old Testament is all about genealogy. You know why? Because without the genealogy, the covenant promises didn't belong to you. Turn with me over to 1 John 4. Let me show you your genealogy. You ever gone through and read all the begats? This person begat that person, and they begat this person, and they begat this person, and they begat this other person. Man, those things will put you to sleep if you're doing Bible reading. But it was very important. doesn't matter so much to us. I mean, I don't care who begat who. But it was very, very important to the Jews. Because if you weren't in the begat line, you didn't have the covenant promise. So they had to keep it up. Man, they had to know. That was their way to know that they had a promise from God. And man, look at the promises that God made to the Jews. Look at the blessings that He provided for them even while they were fallen. No way for them to live righteous. No way for them to produce righteous works. They could obey what God said about the sacrifices, but the day after or even the same day they're performing the sacrifice, they're messing up again. No way. Are they doing anything that is producing righteousness through their own actions? And that's why God had to have the sacrifice. That's exactly the reason why God had to have the sacrifice. That's why the begats are so important to the Jews. Because they had to be able to trace themselves all the way back to Moses. They had to be able to trace themselves back even from Moses to Abraham. And the Bible even shows them how they trace back from Abraham to Adam. And it's important in the line of Jesus to fulfill prophecy. Jesus has to trace his line back to David. Not only did Joseph trace his line back to David, but Mary did too. So God had it covered both ways, even though Joseph was not really part of the equation for Jesus' birth. Yet the household was important. You know what your lineage is? We're Gentiles. I don't know who begat who even back to my great-grandma. Do you? I mean, I don't keep up with that stuff. Some people do. Some people take it on as a hobby. 
But that stuff's not important to me. I don't even want to know. Couldn't care less. With what I know about my family, I don't want to dig too far. I might find out something I don't like. Something I might have to live down. Let me show you your lineage. Let me show you your genealogy. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children. Here's the new species of being. You remember the, the first species, Adam? We said it could have been something that Adam, or that Jesus held Adam up by his armpits and breathed into him. Breathe the breath of life into him, and all of a sudden Adam was alive. That's exactly the symbolism for you and me. Where does Adam trace his genealogy to? God. God begat Adam. What does the Bible say about you? It says, God beget you. You are of God, little children. What does that do for us? And have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What is the number one place that he that is in the world attacks you? Right there in your mind. The number one way that he that is in the world attacks you is with the thoughts of unworthiness, lack, inability, insecurities, and so forth. And you are the very one that God had in mind from the beginning. If any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being. Yeah, but we all have thoughts. We all have wrong thoughts. Well, number one, the devil's going to try to bring the wrong thoughts to you and then condemn you because he's, when he says they're yours. You need to understand the difference between thoughts that come and the thoughts that are yours. The devil is always going to bring thoughts to you of not being worthy, God not being on your side, not being acceptable unto God, your failures, your past, your mistakes, all that other kind of stuff. He's going to try to take you back to Adam and, uh, when fallen man comes on the scene. He wants you to live as fallen man, not in Christ. He wants you to live as fallen man, the second species of being, not as the in Christ new species of being. So what are we to do? Again, the principle is very simple. It's the principle of faith. Calling things that be not as they, though they are. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the weak say I am strong. Folks, this went to such, an, such a degree, such an extreme. It works to such an extreme that Paul even talked about it where his thorn in the flesh is concerned. He said, I'm being persecuted in every town I go to. So I besought the Lord. You know what? I was reading this, I don't know, some time ago. And it struck me that Paul, in the years of his ministry, now we don't know exactly how long Paul was in the ministry, we don't know exactly how long the book of Acts covered, but most Bible scholars agree that it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 years. 20, 25, 30 years. We do know that his three missionary journeys were about a uh, 14 to 16 year period of time. We don't know how long he, he did certain things before that. We don't know what happened after the missionary journeys. Some of that we don't know. But most Bible scholars agree that it was somewhere 20 to 30 years of time that Paul was in the ministry. Paul started being persecuted from the time that he got saved. 
when he went out on his missionary journeys, every town he went to, he's persecuted. The Jews are stirring up trouble. Paul talks about how that he besought the Lord three times that the persecution would end. Folks, you ask God to get you out of trouble three times a day. Think about Paul's prayer life. He said there were three separate occasions that he besought the Lord to take away this persecution. Three times. Only three times. Folks, just what, from what I can re- recall, just stuff that comes off the top of my head about Paul's trouble in the different towns he went to, I could name ten that I'd be praying about at the time. Going to a new town and somebody starts throwing rocks at you. Okay, Lord, I'm tired of this. Throw you in jail, beat you. Lord, I'm still tired of this. He said, I besought the Lord three times over this thing. Folks, I want you to understand the kind of prayer life that Paul had. He's literally saying... I got the same answer three times. But even after the first two, I still went back and said, Lord, there's got to be another way for this. And the same answer came each time. My grace is sufficient for thee. What's he saying? He's saying, let the weak say I'm strong. What was Paul's result? He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then the strength of God comes upon me. He tapped into the answer. And the answer is same in every problem. Whether it's persecution, whether it's poverty, whether it's sickness, no matter what it is, the answer is to call things that be not as though they are. The answer is let the weak say I'm strong. That's what you do when you speak the Word of God. You are recognizing that I can't do this on my own, so what am I going to do? I'm going to follow Jesus' example and say it is written. When the enemy comes against me, however he comes, I'm going to follow Jesus' example when he was tempted in the wilderness, and declare it is written. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that's in the world. You know what the Lord's dealing with me about on this, folks? And I'm sorry if it seems like I went around the block to get here. But really what it comes down to is God's not looking for you to be perfect. God's looking for you to rely on His strength. He's not looking for you to feel worthy. He's looking for you to rely on the truth of His Word that you've been made worthy by the blood of Jesus. He's not looking for you to feel powerful. He's looking for you to declare that the power of God is yours even when you don't feel it. We think in other terms. We want to feel the power before we use it. We want to feel strong before we act strong. We want to feel worthy before we go into the presence of God. And that in Christ man that is hindered and has to deal with thoughts, failures, mistakes, and so forth is the very one that God had in mind when He created the world. You're the one that He wanted to have dominion over the works of His hands. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Here's the bottom line, folks. God's got you right where He wants you. The things you think disqualify you, God's got you right where He wants you. The things you think keep you from having, 
what the Bible says is yours, God's got you right where He wants you. Now, some people are going to hear that and say, well, yeah, see, God's got me right where He wants me. He doesn't want me to have those things. No, you're missing the point. He's got you right where He wants you, not that you feel that you're strong, but that you have to rely on His strength. Not that you feel that you're worthy, but you have to rely on the blood of Jesus. Not that you feel like you've got everything you'll ever need, but that you rely on the Bible that says God has blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That doesn't mean in heaven. He's blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. What that means is that He's blessed you with all spiritual blessings in the unseen realm. How do you access the unseen realm? Believe in your heart and say with your mouth. You call those things to be not as though they are. That's why the Bible says over and over and over again that the just shall live by faith. You are a new species of being. A brand new creation. The one that God had in mind all along. That's why the Bible says that Jesus suffered the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. You're the joy that was set before Him. God's got you right where you want Right where He wants you. Yeah, but, but how am I going to make it? That's exactly where God wants you. Why? Because that's when you speak the Word and He can show Himself strong on your behalf. And you can know, my Father has me in His hand. He'll never let me down. That's the new species of being, folks. Quit trying to be perfect. Except that Jesus made you righteous. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Make this real to us, Lord. Show us who we are in You. Like we've never seen it before, Father. Like we've never known. Thank You, Father. That because we are in Christ, we are a new species of being. That which was never made before. But that which You planned from the beginning of time. To indwell us. To live in us to be our God, and for us to be your people, to write your law in our hearts, and for your spirit to be our source of life. Thank you, dear Father, for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.